morning again, uh, everyone. We've been reading Mark's Gospel together, and uh, starting two weeks ago, we have uh, slowed down alongside Mark as he has slowed down his story to tell us about Jesus' last few hours before his crucifixion. Mark, uh, if you notice, slows this story down to almost a crawl in order to tell us about this, I think what it's no overstatement to say, this night that is the world's worst night. Um, But in the scandalous way that the gospel works, it is also one of our world's best nights. In fact, in the the story that we're going to look at this morning, the part of it that we will read together, Jesus himself says that that night played an indispensable role in God keeping his promises to make us and the whole world right again. He is the one who said, let the scriptures be fulfilled. So let me read from uh, Mark 14, verses 43 through 52. Um, You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Mark 14. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask what we always ask, and that is that you would be happy to use this word that we have just now read and heard together to meet all of us in the places that we find ourselves this morning, those of us um, who are happy to be here, those of us who aren't, those of us who aren't even sure why we're here, those of us who have faith, those of us who don't, those of us who feel that our faith is weak. Father, we know that you can meet every one of us exactly where we are and show us the grace of Jesus, and so we're just asking that you would do that. Show us his grace again, the one who is seated at your right hand now. Show us his grace and change us by it. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, about uh, about a year ago, I was part of a training session here in Chicago with a bunch of other pastors. Um, It was led by a couple of folks from a church planning network based in New York City. And, uh, you know, it was just about as exciting as it sounds. What, what more compelling vision could there be than a bunch of pastors sitting in a room drinking coffee? You know, all the, all the khakis, <laughs> all of the forced politeness, you know, all of the iPads. But actually, um, the training was pretty good. 
We spent about three or four days at it, if I remember correctly. And part of this training was participating in what I think are called team-building exercises. I'm sure some of you have done those in corporate settings or in educational settings. So at one point, the facilitator um, split us out into groups, and he gave each group a board with a nail hammered straight into it. And he gave us 12 other nails, about four inches long. And uh, he told us that we had to somehow balance the 12 loose nails on top of the one nail that was nailed into the board. Those nails couldn't touch anything else. They could only touch that nail or each other. And we had to balance all 12 of them on top of that one nail. It was absurd. You know, I have no earthly idea what this was supposed to do as a team-building exercise. In our hands, it was actually a team-destroying exercise. I mean, a few seconds in, some of the people quit because they figured it was one of those things that you couldn't ever do. But by 10 minutes in, almost everyone in the room, I think everyone in the room, had given up. We had all failed, and we had failed miserably. And so, of course, you know what happens next. One of the instructors, the facilitators, stepped in, and he showed us how it could be done. He solved it in about a minute, where we all failed. The instructor succeeded. I have no idea what the point was. But I do know that that little moment gives us a window into that story that we just read and heard together. Because everyone is failing in that story. Judas fails. The goons that come with the swords and clubs, they fail. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes that sent the goon squad, they fail. Peter fails. The other ten disciples who are left fail. And the guy who runs away naked at the end of the story fails. Everyone fails. But there is, of course, one person in this story who succeeds and who succeeds gloriously. He steps into that chaos, he steps into that darkness, and he is in complete control. Where everyone else fails, he succeeds, and his success is to be led off in chains. His arrest makes him victorious in the garden that night, and I do know what the point of that was, and maybe you do too. His victory was for you, it was for me, it was for the whole broken world. So let's see together how this is true, and let's try to find our own place in this story. Last week, Pastor Dan walked us through the moments that led up to this part of our story. Jesus and the disciples had left the upper room where they ate together, and they made their way to a place called Gethsemane. It was a garden. In fact, it was a garden that Jesus and his disciples went to often. And Jesus wanted to go there and pray. He asked all of the disciples to be present with him, but in particular, he asked Peter and James and John to come a little bit further with him and just watch him. He just wanted them to watch him because he said, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. 
if you've ever been anywhere close to that, having that feeling, anywhere close to, to feeling so out of control that you're going to die, then you know you don't want to be alone. And Jesus didn't want to be alone. He just wanted them to watch. But Peter and James and John were sleepy, so they slept. And Jesus went to wake them up once, twice, and now he is with them a third time and he finds them asleep. But he says, it is enough. And here's why he says it's enough. Because now my hour is at hand. And all of a sudden we realize that this unseen clock that's been ticking over Jesus' head his whole life has finally reached the stroke of his destiny. And Mark tells us that while he's still rousing these sleepy friends from sleep, Judas came with a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people. Now those three groups together, we've seen them before. We probably talked about them four weeks ago, five weeks ago, the last time. These three groups together in Mark's gospel represent the relatively small handful of people who had a complete lock on every aspect of the common life of God's people. And they had decided earlier in Jesus' final week, and they had decided out of fear that Jesus had to be stopped. And not just taken off the scene, they decided that Jesus had to die. He threatened all of the things that represented their security and their status and their comfort in the world. He threatened everything about their ability to control things as they were on the ground. And because Jesus threatened all of those things, they were terribly, terribly afraid. Afraid enough to kill. But of course they needed a guy. You know, they needed a guy. They needed a guy who would know who Jesus was and where he was. Jerusalem was crowded with pilgrims. They didn't want to arrest him during the day and cause a stir. They'd have to do it at night when Jesus was away from the crowd. So they needed a guy who knew where Jesus would be, an intimate of Jesus, who would recognize what he looked like even at night. And they found their man in Judas. Judas knew where Jesus would be, and he leads them to Jesus with a decadent, decadent flourish. Here's the high sign, Judas says. I'm going to kiss him. And so Judas and those thugs show up. And Judas strides up to Jesus and greets him, Rabbi. And he kisses him. A token of intimacy and affection disfigured into a token of death and treachery. And after Judas' kiss, he fades from view in Mark's story. We do not hear another thing about Judas from Mark. Exit the betrayer. And church, I have to tell you that one of the things uh, that I find most compelling about this moment is that Jesus doesn't speak in anger to Judas. I know that it would have been very out of character for Jesus to speak in anger to Judas. Of course it would be, because he's the one who taught us and the whole world to love our enemies. Of course, Jesus is not going to be angry at Judas in that moment, because he's the one who told us that we should bless 
the ones who curse us and revile us. But church, is one thing to know that with our heads. And it is another thing altogether to see it actually happen. Jesus, even when he is sorrowful to the point of death, Jesus is true. He loves Judas to the end. Even in that moment, with the shame of that kiss still hot on his lips, Judas is not too far gone for grace. That's really good news, I think, for people like you and me. Judas has failed, but Jesus has succeeded. So they seize Jesus. And in the strange, dark chaos of that moment, one of the people who stood by drew his sword, Mark says, and he struck off the ear of the high priest's servant. Now Mark is super thin, super light on details for reasons only he knows, but we know from John's gospel that it was Peter who did that. It was Peter who clumsily cut off the ear and that the servant's name was Malchus. And we know from Luke's gospel that when Peter did that, Jesus turned to him and said, No more of this. No more of this. And he healed Malchus' ear on the spot. And on the one hand, you know, we think this isn't too out of character for Peter. This is the kind of thing Peter does. And out of context, out of this moment, it wouldn't be hard to admire his desire to protect Jesus, that instinct that he had. But on the other hand, in context, in the actual living of life as we have it in front of us, in the middle of that story, it is so profoundly, so embarrassingly misplaced that it's tragic. It means that Peter had really failed to hear Jesus despite this deep bond that they have shared over, over years. He has failed to hear Jesus. He's failed to hear what Jesus said about loving enemies. He has failed to hear about the nature of the kingdom that Jesus came to usher in, a nonviolent kingdom. And he has failed, maybe most importantly, to hear Jesus when Jesus has said precisely what would happen that night. In fact, precisely what was happening in that moment, Jesus spelled it out and Peter had failed to hear him. And church, i got to tell you that saying that he failed to hear it is the most gracious way that I can put it. It's true as far as it goes, but the fuller truth is that Peter has refused to hear Jesus. He has refused to hear from that very first moment when Jesus talked about what was going to happen that night. Peter has always wanted the Jesus that Peter wanted and not the Jesus that really was. If only he could smooth down the rough edges. If only he could mute those weird, hard things that Jesus says all the time. If only he would just stop going on and on about suffering and crosses and death and broken body and shed blood. Peter is sick up to here with that stuff. And he has no use for a Jesus who's willing to die. So he's not defending Jesus with that sword. 
He's not building Jesus' kingdom on earth like it is in heaven with that sword. It is one last, stupid, violent, whimpering act of self-will from Peter. He is defending his own kingdom. He is making the world that he wants. And if Jesus will not do something to keep Peter's world intact, then he will take things into his own hands. Get me my sword. And I don't know about you, but that reality only needs to wash over me for just a few moments before I get to something that strikes at, the re- at really the heart of who I am. <laughs> and I recognize that Peter does not have a corner on that market. <laughs> Peter does not have a corner on the market of defending the kingdom of self. And Peter does not have a market on not just failing to hear Jesus, but refusing to hear Jesus. And Peter does not have a corner on the market on stupid, violent, whimpering acts of self-will. I reach for swords. And so do you. We all do. Every, every time we want to mute that part of Jesus' teaching that butts up against our own will, our own kingdoms, our own personalities, our own way of doing things, our own reputations, every time we want to silence the stuff that we don't want to hear from Jesus. He taught us to forgive, but man, man, <laughs> holding stuff over people's heads, it's satisfying. He told us to be faithful in our marriages. But that fleeting, false intimacy of mind or of body, it is a cheap fix to that deep pain that I really don't want to take a look at. He taught us, just like he taught Peter to love our enemies, but man, avoiding them? Gossiping about them? fantasizing about their downfall, that stuff, that's thrilling. And we say, get me my sword. And so Jesus says the same thing to you and to me that he said to Peter that night. No more of this. Put down your sword. (laughs) Put it away. From Jesus, this is a call to repentance. Maybe for some of us here this morning, it's a call to repentance for the first time in our lives. Maybe for others of us here this morning, it's like for the thousandth time in our following of Jesus. But it is a call to repentance to reorder our own values, our own allegiances, our own affections, to reorder them to look like Jesus' values and alliances and affections to stop defending our own kingdom, the world we want, and start defending Jesus' kingdom, the one he came to bring. And that repentance begins with dropping whatever your sword is and whatever my sword is. And church, when we do that, we live like we have never lived before. We grow into the people that he created us to be. So the question is, Do we hear him in the chaos of our own garden?
in the darkness of our own garden. When we are reaching for our sword, do we hear him? Where Peter failed, where we fail, Jesus succeeded. And you know Peter's not alone in his willful misunderstanding of that moment. That's why Jesus says what he says to those guys who are armed to the teeth and dragging him away in chains. He says, have you you come out like I'm a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day you saw me, every day in the temple teaching. You know I'm not an insurrectionist. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a brigand. But you're coming at me like that. You know, church, we know, right? All the swords in all of the world, all the clubs in all of the world, (laughs) brandished by all of the armies of the world, would never be enough if it came to that. But it will never come to that. Because that's not what Jesus was there in that garden for. The poet Herbert said it perfectly. He said, See, they lay hold of me, not with hands of faith, but fury. Yet at their commands, I suffer binding, who loosed their bonds. I mean, that's what Jesus is there for, to loose their bonds, to set those guys free. The guys who are dragging him away in chains, he is there to set them free. Where the arresting party fails, Jesus succeeds for them and for their good. And then Mark tells us flatly, without any embellishment at all, and they all left him and fled. That is what fear does, church. Herbert, again, says, All my disciples flee. Fear puts a bar between my friends and me. James and John, James and John, who had assured Jesus, yes, Jesus, yes, come on. We will drink whatever cup you have to drink, whatever that is. We'll be baptized with whatever baptism you need to be baptized with. Of course, Jesus, we can do it. The sons of thunder who left their nets in an instant when Jesus called, they flee. And Peter, Peter, Simon Peter, the confessor, the rock upon whom the church will be built, the one who said, listen, Jesus, even if all these other losers run away, I'll never leave you. Just minutes before he has said, Jesus, if I have to die with you, I'll die with you. I won't deny you. He flees. He runs. The other ten, the other eight who are left, the other eight. The ones who had been with Jesus for years, the ones who'd laughed with him, the ones who'd hung on his every word, who'd cried with him, who'd fought with him, who'd wondered at him, they all turned tail. And they left the garden afraid. And they left the garden ashamed. The most vivid and jarring picture of the denial of discipleship that is possible just leaving. And then Mark adds his little curious and beautiful epilogue. None of the other gospel writers have this. None of them tell us about this. There's another guy in the garden. 
a young man who followed Jesus, and he's wearing this linen cloth, almost like he heard about what was happening and he, he grabbed whatever he could before he got out the door. He's there in the chaos, and they seize him too, but like Joseph in Potiphar's house, he wiggles free. <laughs> Only thing that's left in their hand is the linen cloth, and he runs away naked from the garden. Naked and ashamed. There's a really, really old tradition that says this is Mark. That this is Mark, the gospel writer, and this is a humble way of him signing his gospel and saying, I ran like everybody else. There's no way, of course, we can know if that's the case. And if it was the case, there's no way we can know if Mark wanted us to really figure that out. But I do know this, regardless of who that guy was. Mark has put this story of a nameless everyman right here in this place on purpose. He has said, hey, everybody, look and pay attention. Here's a guy in a garden running away, naked and ashamed, afraid. I think he did it because he knew that that story would resonate back, way, way, way back to almost the beginning of the true story of the world, back to another garden populated by two people who, having failed, fled from that garden naked and ashamed and afraid when our first parents ran. That dark moment in the garden is tied to this dark moment in the garden. Their story is our story. This is Mark doing what he likes to do, saying, hey, everybody, here's where we are in this story. But, Mark says, there is one person who succeeds, the one who is in chains. He steps into the chaos and into the darkness when everyone else is gone. And where we have failed, he succeeds for our good. Church, it's the whole Christian story played out in this one moment in the garden. His life for ours so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be made new, so that we can live the life that he has made us to live. That's how much he loves us. Where we fail... Jesus succeeds for us and for our good and for the life of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to absorb every part of the story, to not be people who shy away from its darkness, but who enter into that darkness so that we could hear again your love for us, your great, incredible, mind-bending almost too good to be true, to be believed, so that we could understand your love for us. Father, help us to hear this story, to see this story, to breathe in our part in this story, so that we can be changed again by the grace of Jesus, so that we can live the life of love that he has called us to live in this world. Father, do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.